Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The week-long sentencing hearing for Jaskarit Singh Sidhu in Melfort, Saskatchewan has concluded. A heartbreak for the families, of course, has not. And it'll be seven weeks before they find out what the sentence will be. I spoke with the parents of 24-year-old Dana Bronze, Carol and Lyle Bronze, earlier today. A seven-week wait for the sentence to be pronounced on Jaskarit Singh Sidhu. Why put the families through two months of emotionally being left on hold? Scott Newark joined me, the former Alberta prosecutor and executive director of the Canadian Police Association and professor at Simon Fraser University. By the way, if you're convicted of a criminal offense and you're not Canadian, you'll be deported. But in this case and in others, the ordered deported individual has say in whether or not he or she is going to go and when. Canada's trucking industry, what is the horror of the Humboldt Broncos tragedy signaling to the trucking industry in this country? What must be done about licensing and regulation and any safety standard ignoring companies? Stephen Leskowski is the president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance. Here's what he told me. Bruce MacArthur in Toronto this week confessed to eight murders, a serial killer. Peter Vrosky is a journalist, Ryerson University instructor, a filmmaker, and author from Toronto. His best-selling books on serial killers are Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters, also Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present. Ron Joyce died yesterday at the age of 88. The Tim Hortons Empire Builder is remembered for creating a national way of life. Double-double and a honey glaze, please. Fred Anderton is the CEO of VideoBio.ca. He's a former Hamilton television reporter and friend of Ron Joyce who created the video biography with and for Mr. Joyce. Here's what Fred remembered. Joining me on the program are Carol and Lyle Bronze. They're the parents of 24-year-old Dana Bronze. She was the athletic therapist for the Humboldt Broncos. We spoke with Mr. and Mrs. Bronze last weekend. Carol, Lyle, thank you for, so much for coming back to, to speak with us. And what, uh, what is the most significant uh, occurrence that people across Canada should know and understand about the week that you have just endured, this sentencing hearing. And again, thanks for talking to us again. Um, I guess for us, for me, anyway, um, I think it was just the amount of pain that everybody's feeling right now. And although some are, you know, in forgiveness and other ones aren't that far, we still are sharing a very deep pain. And it was very evident throughout the whole week. Um, you know, pe- people kind of bared their souls in their impact uh, victim statements, and it's it's on the record for the world to see. Anybody can, can kind of see what they said. It's all available online, and, and I think for a lot of people that's hard. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I think they felt it was necessary. Yeah, I you know, I've heard that from from people who have presented victims impact statements that it's something that you must do and it's something that allows you some an opportunity to share what was most significant and most important 
for, for other people to know and for the court to know. Now, it's a seven-week wait until the sentencing takes place. That seems to certainly seems to me to be a, a, quite a long period, which won't make things any easier for for your family and and other families. Do, do you find have you thought that that seven week period is is overly lengthy? I was ready for. Um, I was yeah. I was expecting that as well. Yeah, because the, 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 not all the victim impact statements are read in court. Some are just presented for the judge to read, and. Uh, and the defense gets copies too, so they can read it also. And, and um, so the judge has to go through those victim impact statements, and and she has to, uh, you know, I guess maybe look at past cases to try to come up with a what she thinks the sentence should be, or, or you know, and it takes time. She's probably going to have a several pages of, of written um, judgment. I gather, yeah. I gather. I'm sorry, Carol. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. Basically, there's a lot of information, and just to do a lot of research too. So, I gather from what you're saying that you were satisfied, reasonably satisfied, with the way the the, the sentencing hearing went. I was, I think. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the the media was very respectful respectful to us. We had a, a room where we could get away. Um, and they were in a room right beside us. But, you know, we had to go right past our room in the hallway to get to the room that was set aside for us. And, and they were all very respectful. Some of them would maybe stop us in the hallway and ask if we would be willing to give a statement. And But, you know, they, they uh, you know, if, if someone wasn't, they, you know, they, they said that's fine. Yeah, I think, I think this whole country is holding its collective breath and is identifying with with you and the other families, and you're you're like we're like one an extended family. I hope I hope you're, you know, I, I'm sure you understand just how we feel across how the rest of this country feels. I find the words difficult actually, but there's such an emotional uh, connection with your families, and such a such a, a a national sense of we want the right thing to happen for for all of you, the right thing you know given the circumstances. That are presenting themselves now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Carol. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's been we we've I mean, we've been feeling the support throughout all this. Um, it can be a little overwhelming mm-hmm. at times, but um, still welcome, I guess. Uh, it's well, yeah. We are all holding our breaths, waiting for what the final sentence will be. Yeah. Um, were you, did anything surprise you uh, over those four days? Anything uh, catch you by surprise? When we talked last week, you said you'd been prepared somewhat for what to expect. Um, but was there anything that that really took you by surprise in, in during the hearing? I, for me, I I can't think of anything offhand. No. Okay. Let's talk about no. the. I don't think, I think we kind of had an idea of what they were going to, like, obviously we didn't know details of what the statement of facts would be mm-hmm. for sure until they actually were entered, but yeah, there wasn't really any real surprise. Yeah, and we agreed we weren't going to be talking about what uh, Mr. Singh Sidhu had to say, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Let us talk about the, the trucking aspect in the industry. Lyle, you drove 
big rigs, and you and yes. Carol are calling for drivers of semi-trucks to be required to take professional courses designed to prepare these drivers, all drivers, to be on the road with these big rigs and be required to pass specific testing, which hasn't been the case in all provinces. Do you have a sense after the federal and provincial governments and transport ministers have taken direct steps, they say, in, in that regard? Are, are you, are, do, you, do you have the sense that they're approaching what you want to see done appropriately? Well, yeah, they're, they're going to come to some kind of agreement. Whether they're going to go far enough, I don't know. I, I guess time will tell. Um, we'll have to let them figure that out. Uh, and, and I'm hoping, you know, like I think uh, right now, Ontario has uh, is required to uh, for, uh, for new drivers to have 100, 103 hours of training. And I think Saskatchewan, um, I can't remember what the n- number is offhand right now, but coming sometime in March, it's going to be 125 or 30 hours. I just can't remember exactly what it is, but it's a higher number anyway. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going to have to come up with a number uh, for every province and territory that, uh, you know, the, st- the training is standardized because these guys are, are crossing borders every day. And, and when I drove, I was crossing I was crossing a border every day. Yeah. Um, you know, so and it, it doesn't I don't do think much. It's just a- I don't think it's just the the minimum training. Also, I think it's the on-the-job training that these drivers need to like to to understand exactly where they're going to be driving. Like it's a lot different driving within a city than it is in the open prairie, and it's different driving in the mountains and different driving in Ontario. I mean, there's there's differences across the country, but so the I think the companies have to be held responsible to make sure that they are um, also doing you know minimum training to make sure that their drivers on the road are safe as well. Yeah, we'll be talking to the president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance in the next hour about what they see is necessary. But we've heard some really alarming things, like uh, Mr. Singh Sidhu having only received uh, training for uh, a matter of days and then being licensed to drive uh, drive these massive trucks. It's Just from a, just from a fundamentally uh, common-sense perspective, that doesn't make any sense. That's right. Another thing I'd like to see, and, and I'm sure it, it's not even being discussed right now, but in the future, what I would like to see discussed once they got this training program figured out is is a system where trucking companies are held account to to their driver's action. If there if there's a, if a driver gets a, a speeding ticket or a stop sign ticket, well, the company should get a a, a fine for that also, so that the companies are watching over their drivers closer and if there is a driver that's that is a bad driver well they just maybe tell them they have to find a new career or find what the else um you know and, and you look at uh industrial uh the industrial uh, um uh companies they if there's a death in the workplace um you know there's an investigation and, and there's some huge fines uh, assessed against these companies if they're found to be uh, something is, is found to be unsafe in their workplace and, and usually there is if somebody dies um, you know why isn't it the same for, for trucking if 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 a driver is at fault for an accident and someone is, is killed or injured why isn't there a, a, a huge fine assessed against these companies and and I think if we make it make them pay for, for 
the problems that they're causing, uh, maybe they'll get serious about safety and, and train their drivers and, and uh, you know, have safety programs and, and safety uh, bonuses and, and that kind of thing and, and create a culture of safety within the, in, in, within the industry. Uh, it's deeply disturbing that the current reality is in fact in place and has been in place for some time. This is a this is a, a hugely, hugely concerning issue for anybody who drives on Canada's roads. Just before we go back to the issue of uh, regulation and properly licensing and holding responsible people who are in the trucking industry and, and other industries that use major vehicles, there was a, a very sort of heartwarming and touching story that came out of the uh, out of the sentencing hearing that uh, the assistant coach for the Broncos, Chris Beaudry, named his daughter after your daughter. Yes. Yeah, yeah that was uh, very, very touching that somebody that, yes, he has a connection to our family now, and uh, but uh, isn't related <laughs> to, to do that. That was, we were very honored. Yeah, there's a, clo- there's a closeness uh, that, that we're, we're sensing across the country uh, among among many of the families, perhaps all of the families. Um, let's come back to the issue of, of responsibility for trucking companies, for drivers, and just the regulatory process that exists in Canada. We have a patchwork quilt at the moment. Lyle, I believe you've said that you would rather see a national agency to oversee. I mean, we, we need to have uh, a plan that, that applies everywhere. As you said, Carol, there are different parts of the country with different driving conditions. We also have the seasonal requirements. Uh, that the change on a you know can change on a dime, in the middle of a yeah. of, of an afternoon everything can change, so it's it, it just makes sense to have one system that applies to everybody, have a truly national system, and maybe as we talked about last weekend, have a graduated licensing system. Yeah, yeah, that would um, be helpful too. Some some people talked about having a um, kind of like more like a journeyman uh, program, kind of like there is for. Uh, Electricians and plumbers and, yep. and hairdressers, uh, you know, where where they uh, work their way up to uh, bigger and bigger things. It only makes it's sense. Bigger. Yeah, you're talking about monstrous vehicles, and there was the issue of logbooks that we're now finding out, or we've been told, are quite frequently, uh, according to some of the stories I've read and some of the accounts I've read, are, not, are quite frequently not not kept up kept up to date the way they're supposed to be. No, there, there's yeah that that is an issue. I guess that um, you know I, I'm not sure how many drivers are out there doctoring their logbooks, so to speak. Um, but you know now they want to switch to uh, electronic logbooks. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be new in, in 2020 uh, or required, I should say. Uh, but. Uh, but there's there's going to be a whole new set of problems that come with that. There just aren't enough places for drivers to pull over uh, for the night. Um, you know, I guess most drivers will will uh, maybe like myself when I was driving. I guess um, you know if I wasn't feeling tired and I I had a half an hour uh, left to drive and and you know the next stop wasn't going to be for um, 45 minutes or an hour, I, I might stretch that extra 15 minutes or half an hour or maybe even slightly more until I get to that next place where I can safely pull over to sleep for the night and then I'd, 
I'd still, you know, I, I'd make up for, I, I wouldn't make the extra miles through my, my uh, cycle uh, or the extra time. I, I mean, I would, I keep within my total time, but I might've just stretched a day uh, slightly or, or maybe some days I'd even shrink a day apart. If, if I was tired, I'd pull over and sleep early. Mm-hmm. Um, but with these electronic uh, logbooks, it, it, it make it difficult to do. And, uh, you know, there, there just aren't enough places to stop. And if you t- take like female drivers, especially, they need washroom facilities more than a male driver does. And, uh, you know, they, we, we need more places. The option to stop for the drivers. Yeah, this is going to, obviously, we, we have to have a national strategy that has to be worked through. Let me ask you one more question as we, uh, and thank you again for joining us today. Do, do you have thoughts about the Crown asking for 10 years sentence for Mr. Singh Sidhu? He'd be eligible for day parole at about 34 months and eligible for full parole at 40 months with presumed release after two-thirds sentence served. Does that 10-year sentence to you sound reasonable? Um, I, I guess it's never going to be enough for us, right? Like, But, I mean, to say that, I mean, I think it has to be enough to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not you know, when you start talking day parole and full parole, like, you know, that, it, to me, that, that doesn't sound like 10 years anymore, right? So, yeah. so I don't think, I don't know. It, that's a hard one for me to answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look, I appreciate you both coming on the program and talking to us. It's, uh, the entire country is, is engaged with you and concerned about you and, once this situation, this, this, this reality dealt with appropriately by officials as far as transport is concerned and the justice system to be fair uh, to the families. And thank, thank you again, Lyle and Carol, and uh, all, all the best to you. We'll, we'll stay in yeah. touch with you for sure. Now, it's a seven-week wait for the sentence to be pronounced on Mr. Singh Sidhu. And Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, also was executive director of the Canadian Police Association, a professor at Simon Fraser University. Scott, you're asking why the seven-week wait? Why put the families through this extended yeah. uh, I mean, emotional stress? Got, uh, you know, the, the facts are agreed upon. There's nothing in dispute with respect to any of that. Uh, the, uh, the Crown has made a submission, uh, provided uh, different uh, precedents. Defense counsel did as well, too, although they didn't specify a recommended sentence. The, uh, I looked at a couple of cases, and it looks like there is sort of an upper-end range of sentences of uh, maybe four to six years, but those dealt with a couple of deaths as opposed to 16 in this case, plus 13 with serious injuries. So with the greatest of respect to the judge, I think when the Crown uh, suggests 10 years, the adjournment should have been, it was, that was on the uh, Thursday afternoon, the adjournment should have been till the next morning, not seven weeks, because all that does is create the ongoing uncertainty for the victim's families about what's going to come next. What if, you know, she just, the judge decides to give the guy probation? I, just, I think, frankly, quite unnecessary. And uh, it is, uh, uh, there are a number of factors that have to be taken into account, but as I say, they are relatively clear. 
if the uh, judge agreed with a 10-year sentence, you come back the next day and say 10 years. If you don't, you come back and you give an explanation why not, and you give whatever sentence you think is appropriate. Yeah. It just seems like an awfully long period of time, and it's going to drag no, out think, day I, by day by day. Welcome to today's reality. You know, this is a high-profile case. Oh, I might misspell the uh, name of you know, a, a case precedent. I want to make sure that it's very unique. and everything. Give me a break. You're paid a huge salary. Consideration of the impact on victims is a part of what the job should be. I think this uh, judge should have come back the next day, and based on what I've seen, I would think you're probably looking at a sentence in the range of anywhere from six to ten years. Because the facts of what this guy did, I know everybody is, you know, portraying this as sort of, oh, we just went through a stop sign. Um, yeah, but there were four warning signs leading up to the stop sign. The stop sign was oversized. It had a flashing uh, light at it, and this guy still drove straight through it. I mean, it's a combination of uh, incompetence, arrogance, uh, negligence, with horrific consequences. Yes, and indeed. those consequences are legitimately considered as principles that guide the sentencing. And in this case... He should and deservedly should get credit for the, his uh, remorse by pleading guilty. But uh, among the principles that we consider are also a societal denunciation of the conduct and as well sending a message of deterrence to other people. Don't behave like this. And I okay. think that's what should motivate the, uh, the sentence. And it shouldn't take, let me put it this way, if it takes seven weeks for the, uh, the judge to figure this out, she shouldn't be a judge. There's a statement. Um, I can't, I can't, I can't find a single reason to challenge anything you've said. I mean, it just makes absolute sense, and I'm just the layperson. So now you've also told me that he is going to be ordered deported because he's not Canadian. I believe so. Yes. Okay, but if he's ordered deported, he will have a say, potentially or likely or definitely, uh, in when that deportation happens. Well, it's the Canadian system, so uh, explain you know, that welcome, to us. Welcome to the complication of it. First of all. Uh, it is true. It's uh, a uh, he would be found to be inadmissible under Section 36 of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, serious criminality or criminality. Um, and now it's a little tricky. I was doing a little research. Section 44 of the Act: an officer, that is to say, a designated uh, uh, CBSA officer or federal immigration officer, uh, may submit a report that this guy is inadmissible. I, I mean, that's a discretion that obviously should be exercised here. And because of changes that were made to the legislation uh, during the uh, uh, former conservative government, uh, if the sentence is more than six months uh, that he actually gets, which I'm sure it will be, the normal rights of all of the bureaucratic appeals to the Immigration Appeal Division don't apply. And as I read things, the only a chance to avoid it would be to have the minister exercise discretion under humanitarian and compassionate grounds and not order him deported. I don't think that will happen either. But under Section 50 of the Act, we're not supposed to remove somebody if it would contradict a sentence that was imposed. So if the sentence is 10 years, and let's say he gets parole, which, as you know, uh, day, full parole is at one-third of the sentence, day parole six months in advance of that, theoretically... You know, he could say, well, I have to be here for the uh, full 10 years before you can begin to remove me, which is why I think we should start the removal process right now. And every time this guy comes up for parole, it's, you know, it's going to be parole for deportation or you're not getting parole. 
So it's startling. It's startling to understand to know that under legislation he would have the right to uh, to to halt deportation if he was asked if he wanted if they wanted to deport him before the conclusion of the full sentence. It's absolutely mind boggling. Yes, but we also then have the discretion not to release him on parole. Well, yeah. So there's that option. Okay. So okay. what it needs, though, I think, is officials who are determined to achieve the desired outcomes. All right. Scott, thank you. Talk to you tomorrow about All right. something Bye-bye. else. Scott Newark. Canada's trucking industry is dealing with what has happened and the tragedy in involving the, uh, the Broncos, the Humboldt Broncos. And what has this tragedy signaled as well to the trucking industry? We're going to talk about that now with Stephen Laskowski. He's the president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance. Mr. Laskowski, thank you very much for taking the time. And what's the result of the Humboldt Broncos tragedy for Canada's trucking industry in real terms? How are you approaching what you're hearing from families? How are you approaching what happened? Well, Roy, I think um, prior to the Humboldt Bronco tragedy and now post-tragedy, we are taking the same approach, and that's a, a vigilant approach to truck safety and the improvement to truck safety. So not just from a driver perspective, but as Mr. Joseph in the clip that you uh, played just prior to me coming on, dealing with the systemic problem that we have within a small percentage in our industry at the ownership level and how we deal with it. I was looking at the uh, the CTA statement on sentencing of truck driver in Humboldt bus crash. That's the headline. Mm-hmm. And in that second uh, paragraph, one sentence, y- your agency writes, the vast majority of motor carriers in Canada foster and promote a steadfast culture of safety and compliance, which includes progressive safety management systems, rigorous training, and corrective oversight. I don't doubt that. Uh, but there's a regulatory problem at the top of the, uh, of the, maybe at the top of the issues, and that is when somebody like Jaskarit Singh Sidhu can take a several-day course and then be licensed to drive a, a B train, nobody in this country would think that that has any resemblance with sanity. Um, so, so can we start with that? Sure, sure, Roy, and we agree with you. And so does the vast majority of ownership. I can tell you this, that that young man would have went to the vast majority of trucking companies anywhere in Canada, and if he would have been hired, if he would have been hired, he would have started on the docks. He would have started working on the docks, perhaps then been introduced into their own professional training program for drivers, acted as a shunt driver, which means that he wouldn't have left the yard, just work on the trucks, move them about, get more experience slowly been, been introduced to going back onto the road after he received professional in-house training and then eventually getting him into a larger vehicle on the road and a B train and in longer destinations. That's how it works for the vast majority in our industry. Unfortunately, he went to a company that appears at this time, we need the courts to hear it, and the court will start beginning hearing that next week. And we'll learn more about the practices of that company. But there are a percentage in our industry who do not take public safety at its highest priority. And we'll put people behind the wheel before they should ever be put behind the wheel of a commercial motor vehicle. Yeah, please understand, I'm not attacking the trucking industry. I have largely great respect for for the trucking industry. I have a very good friend who who owns a large trucking company. Uh, But... 
when a tragedy like this happens, you have to peel away the layers and get to the issue and deal with them. And I have, unfortunately, I question whether political resolve extends over a long period of time. So it, does it become almost incumbent on the industry to really police itself? Like, are these companies that you've talked about that don't respect safety, that will hire somebody who's probably not even qualified to drive a small car in heavy traffic and hand them the keys to a B train, are these companies, by and large, even members of your association or your alliance? Well, we have over 4,500 members from coast to coast. Yeah. And I can tell you our boards from coast to coast take a very strong position against companies that exhibit this behavior. So you asked a question about us taking responsibility, and we have. And we continue to lobby governments to improve upon inspections and enforcement on the bottom part of it. Okay, let me stop you there. What kind of response are you getting from the governments when you go to them and you say, this is required, this is necessary, in order to preclude what we just saw last year? What kind of response have you, have you received from various governments over this lobbying effort over a period, I don't know, maybe years, where you've gone to them and you've said to them, this is what we need. What have they given you back? Well, I think uh, from the Humboldt collision on, what we've seen is a lot of attention to the issues we've been lobbying for years. No, I get that. I understand that they would do that after the Humboldt collision. But what were they saying to you before? Well, Roy, I think like anything, uh, whether it's truck safety or any public policy issue, uh, Issues of importance depend upon the issues of the day, and they are driven by society, social media, et cetera. I'm not telling you anything you don't know as a as an individual in media. Yeah, but I, I, I have like to tell you, I have to tell you, Stephen. I th- there's nobody nobody in our who has a, a, a semblance of understanding of how the world works who would stand in the way of governments properly adjusting, rectifying, correcting problems that exist in the interest of road safety. We've all been out, we're all out on the roads with the big, with the big rigs regularly. And I, 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 feel for the, I feel for the professional drivers who really care about what they do because they're being dragged into this as well, but it's going to happen. It has to be part of it. Well, I, I, let's, let's pick one specific issue. Okay. And let's, let's image which directly related to the issue in Humboldt. And that's hours of service rules. Mm-hmm. And how they're governed, and quite frankly, how they're captured. What you heard over the over the last five days was that this specific driver had over seventy violations, right? Most of which were hours of service record keeping. In simple terms, the trucking industry is governed by hours of service, and they're captured by a driver and then submitted to their company in paper form. We have been trying for a number of years to get that removed. What I mean by that, paper logbooks. They are open to falsification. That doesn't mean that everyone does it. It's a small percentage, but the same percentage that would put an inexperienced driver behind a wheel are the same individuals who, who would lean towards falsification of logbooks. So for a number of years, we've been asking for electronic logging devices to come into trucks. Mm-hmm. In the United States, they are now mandatory. They've been that way since December of 2017. We are still in the process of finalizing our rule. There is a lot of political commitment to that right now, 
We have seen a lot of leadership from Federal Transport Minister Garneau on this issue. What we are hoping to see is an announcement before this spring that within one year, we will see a new rule come into place with tamper-proof ELDs. And we are hoping every province will stand and support Minister Garneau in getting these tamper-proof ELDs within, within the 12-month period. That is what going to be a big step forward in public safety and in dealing with some of these trucking companies. Yeah, I, and I, obviously this has to happen. Obviously it has to happen. But leadership is getting out in front. Leadership isn't following. But in this instance, there has to be commitment to changing things, as you as an alliance are calling for. Have these companies that are irresponsible as far as being responsible to safety matters, are they identified? Do, 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 do you as an alliance, does the government, do the regulators know what the, who the, which companies we're talking about? And if so, why are they allowed to continue in business? So I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll gravitate toward the last part of your question. Okay. A trucking, a trucking company, the, the statement of the obvious, Roy, is that they're in business to move freight. Mm-hmm. So someone is giving them business. Someone is putting a load on that truck. One of the key things that has to change in the supply chain, and this isn't a government issue, I will deal with government on this one as well in my response to you, but people who use for hire trucking services have to begin to know, get to know better who is moving their freight and what is their commitment to safety, both for their drivers and their vehicles. Right. And when that happens, people will make better informed decisions and our roads will get safer. Okay. As it relates to government and identifying... Can I just ask you one question based on that sure, statement right, you right. just made? Is our decisions on who moves your freight often made based on economic considerations, i.e., truck A is going to charge me this much, trucking firm B is going to charge me this much, trucking firm A is cheaper, I'm going to go with trucking firm A. I think there are a number of customers across this country who value safety as much as the trucking industry and the environment and all those aspects, and they put that into the variable. And I think there's also a number of companies who are driven by the bottom line. So I guess uh, in terms of we take a look at a holistic approach to how we approach truck safety, specifically from the company level, let's start from the beginning, how you get into our industry. Quite frankly, it's too easy to become a trucking company. Uh, if you look at other sectors like airlines or railways, obviously it's a little bit more complicated, the airline issue and at the railway level. Uh, but what we're saying is you just can't go down to your local ministry office, sign a check, get an operating authority, and, and get into business. What we're asking for and what you just saw recently uh, in 2018 in the province of Alberta is entry-level requirements for companies that will require them to show knowledge of what it takes to be a safe trucking company and then mandatory audits of those companies within a two-year period. That is an excellent start. We want to see that from coast to coast. Next is companies on the road. There's two levels of enforcement. One on the road, mobile enforcement or scales, you'll see stationary. What we want to see is what was introduced in the province of Alberta and Ontario 
of what's referred to as smart scales. These scales have the ability to have pre-screened data that ties in, it gets, in essence, it's tying computers from the truck to the scale. So they, the enforcement officers have a complete understanding of who those trucks are and who they're owned by. Therefore, allowing them to focus more on those trucking companies that need it. The next level is just having more enforcement at the company level. And what we mean by that is audits. I can tell you that there are a a number of trucking companies in Canada who have never received an on-site inspection uh, from a provincial ministry. That has to change. Just think about it from our own lives perspective when you walk into a restaurant in the province of Ontario or other provinces. You'll see some form of sticker on the side of the door knowing that some government official or some type of government program was there to say, this this restaurant is safe for you to go inside. Mm-hmm. What we want to see is that that same level of what we'll call triage inspection that could lead to more detailed inspection of every single trucking company. There has to be more monitoring and more consequences over our sector, not because the majority need it, because just like our laws in society, the majority of society don't need laws to know how to conduct themselves appropriately. Right. I have to, we have two minutes here, and I have to read an email to you from a trucker. Would just like to comment on an aspect uh, that I at least have not heard discussed, and that is how drivers are paid, and that is primarily by the mile. Apparently, this method of payment is forbidden in Great Britain and Europe. Secondly, too many drivers spend way too much time loading and unloading for little or no pay. I would suggest this has a lot to do with drivers in many cases running over their hours. I've been driving heavy trucks since 1973 and have seen that go on for years. I have about a minute for an answer to that, Stephen. Well, Roy, I would say this, that uh, the good trucking companies manage their customers, manage their drivers, compensation is complete and the drivers are, are driving within the safe amount of time with no worries. Okay. Very important. Uh, that's a very important aspect of it because people do need to get paid for the hours they work and it becomes a factor. Thank you so much for the time, Stephen. I really appreciate talking to you and uh, push the governments and we'll get behind you and we'll push too. Thanks a lot, Roy. Take good care. Joining us on the program is Peter Vrosky. He's a journalist. Ryerson University instructor, filmmaker, and author from Toronto. His best-selling books on serial killers are Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters, and Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present. Peter, thank you very much for the time. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me on. So uh, here's the the age-old question. Are serial killers born to be serial killers, or are they the products of their environment, or is that too simple a seeking for an explanation? It's too simple. It's probably a combination of both. You know, we don't know. And the more we study them, the less we realize we know. Um, we just can't find that serial killer uh, formula, the X factor that, that you know, let's say abused, you know, a history of abuse in childhood. Lots of children are abused in childhood. They don't become serial killers. Um, The head injury, 
Lots of children have head injuries. They don't become serial killers. So these are common themes in the backgrounds of serial killers, but, you know, it's not a guarantee. So we still to this day don't, don't know. Now, you've studied serial killers uh, all the way from, well, as your, as your book says, from the, the Stone Age to the present. Is there, apart from their, the gruesomeness of, their, of their, their crimes, is there a common denominator that ties them all together, regardless of gender? Well, I, I think that, um, and, and speaking of gender, the last kind of big serial killer we had in Canada was a woman, you know, Elizabeth Lothlauer. Uh, of course. A nurse. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we always forget the women. They're, they're, sometimes they have bigger numbers than the male serial killers. Right. Um, but um, indeed, well, I think the one commonality among serial killers um, in terms of motive is um, a need for control. Um, it's all about control for these uh, individuals, whether they're female or, or, or male. Um, you know, abducting an individual, torturing, um, sexually assaulting them, uh, killing them is a way of maintaining control. And uh, often the things that they do with the bodies is about control. And, and, and certainly in, in the MacArthur case, um, you know, his planting body parts in uh, planters that he was servicing, you know, that's not a way you dispose of a body. That's the way you maintain control over your victim uh, beyond your victim's death. Um, There's also, um, you know, in the Crown statement of fact um, that, you know, the Crown used the term staging, that some of the victims were staged. Um, That's, you know, forensically, that's incorrect. I'm, I'm surprised that they don't have the expertise necessary um, to, you know, properly properly assess the pathology of Bruce MacArthur. What he was doing was posing. Um, the staging is when you try to make a crime look like it was something else. For example, you try to make a murder look like uh, a suicide. That's staging. There's no evidence that Bruce MacArthur was staging anything. What there was apparently evidence of in in photographs or videotapes that he posed his victims, and and that's a common aspect among serial killers. So what? So when you say when you when you say posed, what are we talking about? We're talking about perhaps they were posed in obscene positions. Okay. He may have dressed them in a certain way. Um, He may have posed them as if they're still alive. Um, but what he's doing essentially is he's um, using the victims almost like an anatomically correct sex doll, essentially. Um, so he's he's posing them in these in these photographs, and 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 then he will hang on to the photographs and kind of remember them in that state of being under his control. And and that's you know Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, posed many of his. Um, victims. And, and so, you know, perhaps, you know, certainly serial killers are influenced by what other serial killers have done. And, and, and so perhaps he was inspired by Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, actions. Wow. Uh, were you, this, this now makes me ask you this question, when it, when it comes to them wanting to be in control or extend control beyond death, 
Were you surprised that he pled guilty? And could pleading guilty be uh, MacArthur's way of extending control even further because he's the one who is deciding what happen- what, what happens to him as far as the court is concerned. He's the one who's deciding, I'm going to plead guilty. Uh, well, Roy, that's that's very good. Um, I hadn't thought of that, but um, that's that's a good take on it. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, it means certainly that um, we're not going to know very much about him because there's not going to be any kind of psychiatric evaluations entered into evidence. We're not going to know a lot about his biography. Um, you know, he, you know, just the way with the Colonel Williams case, we never really found out what it was that drove him simply because none of that um, was presented by the defense or by, um, you know, the prosecution, by the Crown. Um, none of that, that psychological evidence is, is, is going to be heard or, or perhaps even, you know, those evaluations made. There won't be any need for it. Um, secondly, I think he has family himself, so there may be um, some, you know, selfish reasons just, you know, to protect his own family and spare them that he may have pled um, guilty as well. Well, the psychopathy, you know, on the control is very good. Yeah, well, thank you. The, the psychopathy of, of these people, when you consider somebody who's a mass murderer or serial killer and so um, intentionally takes numerous lives, and then has potentially concern about family members finding out who he is, what he's done, why he's doing it, how he's doing it. So he extends concern to his families, but casually takes other lives. That's seriously twisted. Yeah, and it, it's it's a common factor among serial killers who do have families. Um, you know, it's it's not terribly unusual for a serial killer to have uh, children, to be married, and and, and so forth. Um, and often they, uh, you know, see their families kind of as an extension of themselves. Um, they may have some kind of, you know, certainly in the case of psychopaths, um, you know, they may have some kind of rudimentary feeling for their family, but often they regard their family as, you know, their property. Um, and, and so they have this kind of proprietal uh, sense of protecting their property, their family. It's not necessarily because they have this kind of deep emotional um, connection with their family. Yeah. Peter, you've said that, uh, that, that, that MacArthur is way outside the norm for when serial killers first strike. Talk to us about that. Yes. Well, you know, statistically, the average age uh, is between 27 and 28. So he was, if we start backing up his, uh, you know, cases, he was in um, his 60s when he started killing. So that's very unusual. Uh, But, you know, again, the Colonel Williams case, here's a guy who was in his 40s, also uh, kind of defied. You know, maybe there's something about Canadian serial killers uh, you know, chronologically, that begin early in their careers. But certainly, if Bruce MacArthur, be, you know, did not begin at, um, you know, that typical age, which would have, you know, put him killing people back in the 1970s, um, if he did not, then certainly he defies the statistical norm. It's very unusual for somebody at that age. Um, to start acting out these fantasies and and these rages, so so um, so suddenly you know, maybe maybe something organically wrong with him on top of that. Yeah. So maybe we ask ourselves: Did is it possible 
that he in fact committed murders much earlier, and we just don't know about it. Nobody's charged him. Nobody's linked him to murders. I understand well, police I are, they, are checking. They're, they're looking, yeah. uh, but it's not going to be a high-priority investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult, but I know the police, certainly the Toronto police, reviewed a number of um, individuals who went missing um, in the gay community as early as the 1970s. We had a number of murders as well that still have not been resolved. Uh, but, you know, evidence is very difficult now to find. I mean, the one thing that linked MacArthur to his, um, you know, to his victims, of course, was this new technology, um, and that he was, you know, cruising for many of his victims on dating apps. Um, None of that existed in the 1970s. So, you know, we didn't even have DNA in the 1970s. So unless he confesses to it, and we still don't understand yet, um, you know, what motivated his confession, you know, whether there was some kind of deal and what was the nature of the deal and and so forth. Um, But, you know, it, 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 because he defies the statistical norm, um, that's a big question. Was you know was he killing since that that early age? It's mm-hmm. entirely a possibility. Would not be surprising. Peter, I'm I'm really uh, interested in this uh, Russell Williams' ability to be two people in an environment where he would have been. Well, he had a very public uh, persona, at least within the military. He. How did he pull this off? How do they do it? Well, that's the nature of the serial killer. Um, You know, they have a secret life, and they have this uh, public life, um, and they... Um, I imagine they regard their secret life as their real life, and the rest of it is um, posing. And, And so here you have an individual who's, you know, committing all these um, fetish burglaries. Eventually, they become homicides of, of, of women, and yet, at the same time, of course, he's in this senior position as a wing commander at a Canadian Air Force base. Um, you know, he's flying prominent uh, people, VIPs. Uh, you know, as a pilot, he's he's. He's, he's got this career that is moving upwards. Um, but, you know, Williams, too, pled guilty, and, and, and we don't know anything about his childhood, his um, adolescence, what was going on there. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it just seems like just another guy from an elite um, you know, he went to Upper Canada College from an elite school uh, who had a normal conventional life, and yet this happens. Um, uh, it's really it's really stunning, and, and I'm sure many people who know these serial killers and find out about them later uh, look back and say, what was it about this person that was different? How come I never noticed anything about them? But as you say, they're, they're very good at, uh, yes, at, at living, uh, living the, the sociopaths and psychopaths. Um, well, exactly. You know, sociopaths and psychopaths, um, they have this ability to wear what, you know, what the original book on, psychopath, on the psychopathy was, was uh, called was the mask of sanity. Um, and so they wear this mask. Uh, and, and certainly Williams had, had this amazing mask. He wasn't just an ordinary guy going, you know, to 
work at the office, um, he had this very high-profile military career, um, but that essentially was his mask. Beneath that, something was was going on, and we don't know for how long, Um, again, because there, there was no... Um, kind of challenge to the prosecution, no defense mounted, no psychiatric evaluations, none of that, um, you know, went into where normally you have in a trial, all that is entered into the evidence. Uh, in his case, with this guilty plea, we just, again, don't know. In the, uh, in the 90 seconds or so we have left, let me ask you about female serial killers. You say they are very different to male serial killers as far as psychopathy is concerned. How so? Um, well, I actually don't. I, I, I think they're very similar in a way because it's about, again, it's, it's about control. Um, and so for female serial killers, it's the same thing, except they will, um, you know, demonstrate and manifest their acts of control in different ways. Um, you know, males, often it's about abduction and the sexual um, assault and torture for um, most female serial killers, it's the actual murder. They go straight to the point, which is why female serial killers are actually, you know, have longer um, killing careers. They're much harder to apprehend, to detect. Nobody really notices them. You know, they're called the quiet killers because it's not like they're leaving bodies um, in, you know, in places where you shouldn't be finding bodies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by the roadside in a motel room and so forth. Um, they're often killing vulnerable victims in hospitals, in nursing homes. Um, they're around in places where people die of natural reasons. That, too, makes it difficult to detect uh, okay. a female serial killer. Peter, thank you so much for the uh, the time. I mean, this is all, uh, this is all news with the MacArthur guilty uh, pleading, and people are fascinated and, you know, Fascinated, interested in, in, in this whole issue. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, Roy. All the best. Yesterday, we learned about the death of Ron Joyce. Died at the age of 88. The Tim Hortons builder, franchise builder, is remembered for creating that national way of life that we all subscribe to at one time or another, most of us, for much of our life. Double-double and a honey-glazed, please, or your favorite choice of of donuts. Before I talk to Fred Anderton about Mr. Joyce and his experiences with Ron, I want to play back for you about a minute of a conversation I had on air with Ron Joyce just over a year ago. Listen to him talk about his first day on the job at Tim Hortons. The true of Tim Hortons, one time all we did was sell donuts and some coffee. And over the years, it progressed. And by the way, it started in Hamilton, Ottawa, and Dunsmuir. It was store number one. And I'll recall my first night of uh, training. I went into the, the store to sort of look at the, the whole operation and learn to bake donuts. So anyway, and unfortunately, when, when, when I got into the store the first night of training, I think my instructor, uh, there was no benefit of a... Of a of uh, any kind of information on on recipes and things like that it was all done by uh, and my my trainer uh, used a Ouija board so if you can imagine <laughs> you're going to be in there to find out how to be produce the product and learn that because uh, and uh, and the guy sits down with a Ouija board and we're going <laughs> to 
this is what we're going to decide on, but we're going to make in volume. So Fred Anderton uh, from videobio.ca, you listen to Ron Joyce tell that story about his first day on the job or first night on the job, and out comes the Ouija board. (laughs) (laughs) That's Ron, isn't it? It really is. He had such a wonderful uh, sense of humor. And first of all, uh, Roy, I want to thank you for uh, for allowing me to be on your show um, to talk about our friend Ron because he was such a great man, a great Canadian, and it's a, it's an honor to uh, to be able to talk about him on your show. Well, you you uh, you knew him for many years. Uh, you knew him better than most of us. You created the video biography for Ron specifically. And it's it's the human side of Mr. Joyce that we always appreciate, Fred. But he was also a tremendous business genius, and he encouraged entrepreneurs in Canada to give it a try. Talk to us about that aspect of the man. Well, first of all, uh, Ron, as many of your listeners will know, was a cop before he got into the food services industry. Uh, they may not know that he first opened a Dairy Queen franchise, and he said that he was making $5,000 a year as a policeman, and he made $17,000 working part-time at his Dairy Queen franchise, and he said, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> so he decided to get a second Dairy Queen franchise, but he was turned down by Dairy Queen because he didn't have enough money, and that's when he approached Tim Horton about teaming up with him in the uh, the coffee and donut business. and. Tim actually started his business venture in North Bay selling hamburgers. And when that failed, he opened the first Tim Hortons Donut and Coffee Shop on Ottawa Street, as, as Ron had mentioned there. And um, by the time Ron approached Tim about uh, joining him in the business, Tim had already had two or three partners, and they didn't work out. But Ron had that business savvy, and it was something that Tim really didn't have. Tim was a great hockey player, but business wasn't um, his forte. And so what Ron said was, listen, you play hockey, and I will run the business. And it worked out so well. And another thing that very few people know is that in the beginning, neither one of them had a lot of money, although Tim was playing hockey, so he did have a salary. So what he did was he gave half of his hockey salary to Ron, so that Ron could concentrate on the business. Wow, that's a that's the first time I've heard that story. Yeah, um, I was shocked when uh, Ron uh, told me that story. I don't think uh, Tim's wife was very happy with that arrangement, <laughs> but uh, it certainly worked out well. And uh, one of the things that they did, and David Sobey told me this story, uh, when he first met Ron Joyce, he told me he was surprised because he went up to his office and uh, the two desks were put together so that Ron and Tim were facing each other. And uh, I asked Ron about that later, and he said, well, the reason was Tim said to him, listen, um, I've had some business partners. It didn't work out. If we're going to be successful, we have to be able to look at each other right in the eye. And so that's why they had their desks facing each other. And um they were they became really good good friends and it was heartbreaking for ron when um tim was killed in the uh in the car accident mm-hmm. talk to us a bit about the uh, philanthropic side of mr joyce well as you know he was a very very generous man 
you know, he had a zest for life, and he turned that uh, zest for life into a fortune because he worked very hard at, at what he did. But he wanted to give back. He never forgot his roots. He was born in Tatamagouche, a small community in Nova Scotia. And, you know, here's another story. At one point, they wanted to put a, put a store, a Tim Hortons store, in Tatamagouche. But Ron said, there's a gentleman there who has a coffee shop. And he vetoed the idea of putting a store in his hometown because he was afraid he would put that man out of business. That's just one small sample of the kind of man Ron was, and he wanted to give. He wanted to give back. If if you needed something, Ron would be there. He'd pick up the phone. He'd make a phone call mm-hmm. for you to open doors for you. I know he did that for me, and I'm sure he's done it for many many people. Yeah. And that was really what he was all about. When he got that money, uh, he didn't let it change him. He said, you know, a lot of people, wealth changes them. He said, it hasn't changed me. And it didn't. Fred, there's a, so much. there's a story about him being in, uh, in Nova Scotia, going to a children's hospital, I believe it was, and he, had, he was going to give them a check for a million dollars. And he saw a child being uh, gurneyed toward the operating room. And he said, I'm not going to give you a check for a million dollars. I'm giving you a check for two million dollars. And that, to me, is the man Ron Joyce was, and he inspired so many. There's so many stories, including trying to get a, an NHL franchise in, into Hamilton, uh, being ready with a $50 million check for the NHL, and we know how that turned out. Ottawa got the franchise. God bless them. But, uh, but, but Ron Joyce gave so much to so many Canadians and inspired so many. Thank you so much for the time. It's uh, videobio.ca. Fred Anderton joining us on The Roy Green Show. Thanks, Fred. Thank you very much, Roy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.